This is B-Side, I'm Andrea Seabrook, and we are about to enter where? Where are we going? Uh, this is the Leather Rack in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. So this episode of B-Side is about taboos. We're talking about things that are totally taboo in modern society, and I'm here with my friends. Timmy. Josh. Steve. And we are, as we said, in this um, sex shop. Josh, describe the scene. Um, well, the ceiling's kind of low. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, that's not the most notable feature to me when I walk in, <laughs> but um, keep going. <laughs> Well, there's lots of racks of leather, hence the name, um, and sex toys, and well, and techno, and techno, as you can hear. <laughs> well, techno. let me let me let the um, our wonderful B-side audience in on something here, and that is, as we were walking up the street, you all were asking me, okay, so we should we go to like the vanilla like normal sex shop with just the oh they just have edible underwear, <laughs> or like the real sex shop? And I'm like, well, we're talking about taboos. We want to go to the real sex shop, and we came here. And so, what's the difference? The difference would be that the vanilla sex shop is really, really aimed at straight people, right. maybe who are starting to look at these kinds of taboos themselves, maybe in their own sex lives, or maybe they just want to go there and you know, giggle. Whereas this is a place where you come when you're kind of more into the action, I you're think. You're like, real. When you're, you're, when you're actually when you're doing it, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the other place is kind of like, oh, you bought warming massage oil. Like, Dice. I mean, there's like a commercial on TV for the KY jet massage oil, right, with right, like the straight right. woman, and it, that's where you go to buy that. Like, you right. see the commercial where the like really white middle-class couple is like, warming body lubricant. Right. I and mean, this is like, you might have a dungeon. Like, you might right. need to buy <laughs> You might need to buy equipment for your dungeon, and this right is where now. you would come to buy it. Anywhere right, that has a hat for sale that says pig, it is taboo. And okay. it's special need. What does taboo really mean, I guess, is my big question. Yeah, that which is unspoken. Yeah, it's so socially unacceptable that you couldn't be at a dinner party and be like, well, I mean, I had my ball gag in last night, and that was really hot. But I guess, I mean, sec in general, like, can you talk about sex at a dinner party or not really depends on your social group. Well, it makes me think of how, if you take us back, like, a hundred years, it was still in normal use for, like, a Catholic couple on their wedding night for there to be this embroidered, beautiful white sheet with a hole in it right. that you would lay over the woman right. and then have sex with her through the hole. So she would, you wouldn't have to see her nudity as you were deflowering her, as, right. you, as she was lo losing her virginity on her, you know, yeah, wedding it's, night. It's interesting. It's hard to stand in the sex shop and think about nudity as taboo right. because we're in so far the other direction. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, think about it. People. We wear clothes everywhere, don't we? Sure. Okay, I mean, right. we cover it up all the time. Actually, you know what? When I saw the Queer Eye for the Straight Guy episode <gasps> with yes, the nudists, that freaked me out. I right. thought that was taboo. When they're eating. Which is so weird, because you'd think that I wouldn't right. think of things as taboo, but I was like, oh my god, people who are just naked all the time, like, and yeah, they go to that dinner party when they and they're eat having, like, hors When is really problematic yeah. for me. Wait, so tell me about what happened in this episode. Well, so they did, one of the, the guy who's a queer makeover. eye for the straight guy is right. a makeover of this guy who's a nudist. And so one of the things he does is he have his like big party and they do it all nude. I mean, they teach him how to cook and you know, he's making drinks and they're all at a party and they're dancing and they're nude. And it was, I mean, there were two reasons I think why that was 
taboo or freaky or whatever. One was the idea of like food plus nudity, kind of weirds me out a little bit. But you know, the other issue was that they weren't perfect specimens. I was about they to say that. They didn't look like this guy. They, they were like fat like and flabby. Right. And so they weren't attractive to look at nude and that somehow made it so more much more taboo. taboo. Right. I totally Real bodies are taboo. Yeah. You know, perfect bodies are not. The senior producer of B-Side, her name is Tamara Keith, and she's a fantastic lady woman and she she doesn't walk around her house naked without like all the blinds closed she's very like conscious of that but she has these relatives who are nudists just like you're talking about and they are totally free with their bodies and so let's just say they don't leave anything to the imagination taboo everything seemed to be great for my aunt carol and uncle scott they had a nice house just minutes from lake tahoe's best ski runs and everyone in my family envied their Mercedes SUV. But then something changed. Things were going just fine, I thought. And then all of a sudden I realized we couldn't afford to make the house payments. And so we had to make a decision. So my aunt and uncle decided to downsize. They gave up their nice house and nice car and moved into a 1974 Comanche motorhome. You know, we kind of drove by a car lot and Reno one day and said $2,300 on that motorhome. <laughs> so I went in, asked like if a number fell off or something, but I said no, and we wrote a check and drove it down here, and it's been down here ever since. Here is Laguna del Sol, an upscale campground outside of Sacramento. And it's here that my aunt and uncle now spend a whole lot of time. For a while, their campsite at Laguna was their only address. It wasn't really plan A, but Plan A oftentimes doesn't work out, so I guess about Plan F or G's in effect right now. What makes this situation truly unique is that Laguna del Sol is a clothing optional resort. You heard that right, clothing optional, as in leave your pants, shirt, and modesty at the gate. They have showers, swimming pools, a restaurant, and it's still cheaper to stay there than at most traditional campgrounds. I showed up at Laguna del Sol on a warm, sunny day. Turns out this is perfect weather for nude sunbathing. My aunt and uncle met me at the gate. My uncle was wearing shorts. My aunt was wearing much less. When we walked up to their campsite, we found a very tan and completely naked man sprawled out next to the RV. He was just a friend stopping by for a visit. I pulled out my microphone, got set up for the interview, and then realized that at some point along the way, my uncle had dropped his shorts, something he said he wouldn't do. Since we're all kind of out here and, I mean, we're naked, it's real hard to, you know, not just be kind of nice and, <laughs> you know, everything else. There's, there's, I don't know, it seemed like a lot of barriers are already kind of broken. And uh, people just seem to be real honest and, you know, good to each other. My aunt and uncle had visited the nudist resort several times before, but had no plans to move in until they found themselves in financial straits. Then Uncle Scott says Laguna del Sol became not just a place to let it all hang out, but actually a cost-effective way of surviving some really tough time. We stayed out here the whole summer in, in between houses, and it was over three months from like from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And our bill was like 700 bucks. And that was including eating out sometimes and going to the bar every weekend and drinks and camping and everything. I mean, 700 bucks, I mean, you know, that's not even half most people's rent. 
And, that, and we're talking three months of just having a nice time. The nice times of the nudist resort are now relegated to the weekends. Scott and Carol recently bought some property in the Sierra foothills. They're living on their land and trying to build a house. This wasn't plan A or plan B or even plan D. But for Carol and Scott, it's the way they're going to be living for a while. And so we're working our way up. <laughs> we're wa working from square one. And I think it's going to go fine. I think we're going to be happier this way without all the bills and um, trying to keep my Mercedes. And <laughs> I'm not going to do it anymore. I'd rather be happy. And I've learned to be happy, I think, with what I've got. Life is a continual roller coaster. Every day is a roller coaster. I mean, you know, right now we're, you know, clicking clicking back up the track and, you know, and then sometimes you get the slide. And you never know. You just have to get up every day and do it. And when they do work their way back up, Scott and Carol say they won't stop going to Laguna del Sol. They like it here. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, fully clothed in case you were wondering, at Laguna del Sol. I'm Andrea Seabrook, and we're still at this sex shop. Where are we? What is it called? The Leather, the leather rack. rack. The Leather Rack in DuPont Circle in Washington, like D.C. We're talking about yeah. taboos, and not just naked taboos, but let's go with this just a little bit further here. We're looking at a rack of magazines, and one of the things that's always been fascinating to me about pornography, uh, there are many fascinating things about pornography, <laughs> but one of them is that there are like levels of pornography. Oh, totally. right. yeah. Absolutely. The Playboy, like, airbrush, soft curve versus Hustler, like, spread eagle versus this magazine we're looking at now, which is a gay porn but no penetration versus gay porn with penetration. And right. same for straight porn, actually. The penetration seems to be a real, and like, dividing line. whether they show line. the ejaculation or they don't show it or right. whatever. You know, I have to ask, isn't this just splitting hairs when you get down to a certain point? Like, who is making these distinctions? But... But and it, why? It's not like there's like a rating academy. Some, no, but someone's consuming it, so it's what they think is hot. It's, it's what, what turns what they you want on. So, stepping away from these people for a second, there are many more taboos in society than sex shops and nudity. And one of them is trash. We were talking on the way over here about different cities in the world that have different amounts of trash in the streets. and. But there are people who don't feel that way about trash. They don't feel like it's bad, that it's garbage. I th I'm thinking of Found Magazine. I'm thinking about people who dumpster dive. They, it's not something you do by the light of day, though, so it's kind of another kind of taboo. Here in the next story that we're going to play, you could actually say that the people in this story even make some money out of their trash habit if you don't mind sneaking around in the middle of the night and picking through trash. Besides, Dave Gilson presents The Art of Dumpster Diving for Fun and Profit. Carolyn Zelanka and her boyfriend Ben Diley like to talk trash. I got together with them around 11 o'clock on a rainy San Francisco night to cruise the outer mission on a quest for the perfect dumpster. After driving around for a while, they found what they were searching for a big white dumpster, and it looked like someone had emptied half the contents of their home into it. This is the truly exciting moment as you approach the unfamiliar dumpster because you think, what wonders does it hold? It could be anything or nothing. This is awesome. 
This is a good one. Carolyn and Ben have a few tips for beginning dumpster divers like me. First, wear gloves and old clothes and bring a bag to carry what you find. And don't forget a flashlight. Um, the flashlight is definitely a good idea since uh, most of the dumpster diving does occur at night. Um, partly because I, I'd be way too embarrassed to, to go through a dumpster during the day. And, and partly when it comes to going through trash, Carolyn and Ben have different strategies. Carolyn hovers around the edges of the dumpster, peers into it with a flashlight, and reaches in only when she sees something good. Uh, I'm interested in these clothes over here. But first, I have to remove what is covering them up, which is this chair. Which, oh, this is, oh, this is cute. It's a little chair on wheels. Ben, on the other hand, just dives right in. I found him crouched at the bottom of the dumpster, wearing a mink stole he just found, smoking a cigar, and methodically examining everything he picked up like an archaeologist. And, and this is, I guess, what keeps one coming back for more, is just uh, wondering what in heaven's name will one unearth yet. They have some other tips, too. Don't eat anything you find in the trash. And be quiet so you don't wake up the neighbors. And if anyone does give you a hard time, remind them that dumpster diving may not be pretty, but it is completely legal. I have researched this. I've, I've looked up the co California code and the laws and, and uh, found out there is no law against going through people's trash. So far, Caroline and Ben haven't gotten in any trouble. They figure it's because they don't fit the stereotype of scavengers as homeless or hungry. They're both clean-cut college grads in their 30s, and they never imagined they'd end up spending a couple nights a week doing this. Uh, this whole thing kind of started out last winter when uh, I got laid off from a job at an ad agency and, um, you know, was just trying to see what uh, I could do to make some money. Um, but I didn't at all think of dumpster diving as a way to make money. You know, it was, you know, just a way to save money, I guess. What started out as a way to get free firewood and the odd piece of furniture turned into a fun hobby and a profitable business. Carolyn now makes as much as $1,000 a month selling what she finds on the internet. Back at Carolyn and Ben's apartment, you can see the fruits of their labor. They live in a tiny one-bedroom place in Noe Valley. The living room has been transformed into a Victorian salon, complete with antique molding, gilded picture frames, and velvet fringe, all found on the street. In fact, every corner of their apartment is filled with remarkable things that someone considered trash. Apple laptop, PowerBook 180. Check this out, okay. This is a 16 millimeter camera. A case of pre-embargo uh, Cuban cigars. I have beetle boots that we found in black and brown. Meals ready to eat, yes, Nine, we found a whole okay, box of them. October 1968, <laughs> which makes them about two months older than I am. Oh. There it is. And it's a vibrator. I mean, it's like the coolest thing in the world. Sure enough, it's a contraption from the 1950s called the Stimulax Junior, and it appears to be in perfect working order. And the pièce de résistance, or my favorite thing we ever found, is this old uh, old radio console. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a 1938 uh, Silvertone. As you can see, it's in very good condition. It's. Um... They've heard stories about other dumpster divers finding wads of cash, diamonds, even letters signed by Abe Lincoln. They're not sure if any of this is true, but it makes them wonder why anyone would throw this kind of stuff out. This is where Ben's Harvard education comes in handy. There is this odd, I'm going to have to use this word, you want to slap me? Okay, there's this narrativity uh, that, uh, ow, okay, I'll do it again, then, that, that inheres in the dumpster. Back on the street, the dumpster wasn't giving up too many narrative clues. 
I mean, what kind of person would put a bunch of baby clothes and a soggy copy of the Happy Hooker in the same load of trash? I didn't see much I could imagine putting in my living room, but Carolyn and Ben made out all right. They found the mink stole, a couple pairs of glasses, an unopened bottle of booze, a copy of Mao's Little Red Book in what looked like Hungarian, and an old typewriter that Carolyn could fix up and sell. Not bad, but it was just a small sample of what Carolyn says is out there. I have never seen the quality and variety and abundance of, of goods that is le- are left on the street, in dumpsters, or, or whatever that I have here in San Francisco. So the next time you pass a dumpster, take a peek inside. Who knows what you'll find? For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson. inch rocket. You can't fit that. All right, we're looking at a um, dildo. It looks like a... It is huge. It's built for easy handling, solid, non-porous, and hygienically superior. It's the size of my upper arm. How wide do you think that thing is? Two inches. No, bigger. Bigger? bigger. Three or four inches. It's as wide as a tennis ball, anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the head, obviously, is... Is that is crazy. No one can. Maybe if you've had like, like ten children. Hydrant. How much? Lube? I'm real serious. Do you think women with ten children shop at the leather rack? <laughs> maybe. Hey. You if never there's know. one thing about taboo, you can't really generalize. You, you know? can't. That's absolutely. That's a good point. I mean, you find out some shocking things about people. You wouldn't even true. believe it. True. I mean, think about like swinging. It's Whoa. true. Actually, we often. Oh my God. All right, I'm not going there. All right. We often. Um, <laughs> We often find out, you know... Aren't you glad it's radio? That, um... It's taboo even for B-side. It's taboo even for us. Do you often wonder if some of the people who seem the most straight-laced have the most taboo things in there? Oh, I assume it's true. Me too. Because you've got to let that out somewhere. Of course, yeah. That's part of my, like, fantasy life. People watching or whatever, you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, not my fantasy life, but you know what I mean? I have fantasies that those kinds of people are probably... Are doing really crazy, crazy things on their off hours. Mm -hmm. At least I hope so. I hope so, for their sake. (laughs) Okay, but let's, okay, let's get outside of the sex shop a little bit here. It's hard to do when we're standing next to the dildos. Think outside the the sex shop. Okay. (laughs) Okay, and get to some taboos, like... We were talking a little bit about how maybe you guys aren't the right people to be talking to about sex taboos anyway. So what exactly, what exactly would be serious taboos for you guys? What would really be something that's like wrong to do? Pedophilia? Not getting out of sex. Oh, sorry, getting out of sex. Yeah. Really wrong to do. I'm thinking like, you know, like throwing away or defacing books. Oh. Burning books. Oh, okay. burning books is books that's bad. terrible. I, I think that's taboo. No, but that's yet, very taboo. Maybe I should. I also have a First Amendment <gasps> thing where I think it should be possible to do it, like burning the flag. I think that's fine. Although Even taboo. Though it's kind of taboo. Oh, I don't have a problem with burning the flag, but burning books really bothers me. 
books. Well, the reason why I think about it is because um, public libraries, for instance, have a really hard time getting rid of their books mm. because it bothers the patrons so much. Right. They have to do it like in the middle of the night. Like if they want to throw right. away books really? after, even after no, they've done, even after they've done the book sale sense. and they've tried to get you to buy them for thirty-five cents and you haven't, when they go to throw away a box of books, if yeah. they're seen oh, by yeah. local patrons, it's. Yeah. I used, no, I I used to work at a bookstore, and that's actually totally true. With paperbacks, the only thing that's of value because you can always give books back to the publisher is you have to tear of like the you know cheap Patricia Cornwell novels and things like that. Yeah. You, it's only the front cover that you can actually redeem for the like 15 cents or whatever it is that a Barnes and Noble would get back. And the rest of them get thrown away. So the idea of throwing it, I mean not donating it, but literally like taking a book and putting it in the trash can horrifies me. Yeah, but what are you gonna do with you know 18,000 copies of you know the Poisonwood Bible or Oh, but you shouldn't <laughs> throw them away somehow. I don't know. I mean, how many bridges of Madison County? Oh, those you can throw away. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Okay. That's not. Tough. There's a hierarchy. <laughs> we have here on B side. We have another story about this, but um, it's about the fact that a few years ago the San Francisco Public Library made a very public display of destroying some of their books um, and getting getting rid of them they and people applauded at this one in san francisco and you'll have to hear the story to find out here it comes it's peter crimmins produced the story i'm jim van buskirk and i'm the program manager at the san francisco public library uh books started being discovered slowly one by one two by two and there would be these weird eye shapes that would be carved out of either the cover of the book or deep into the text. And these books were not all found on one shelf and gone through systematically. This person used the card catalog and did a subject search and found books about gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender issues, uh, books about HIV and AIDS, and books about women's health issues generally. And some false hits, almost comical, a book about the Enola Gay, a book by Peter Gay. So this person was determined. It was pretty nerve-wracking because this was a person who was very angry and had a very sharp object. And I personally didn't think it was that big a leap from carving up books to carving up people. His name was John Perkins. He was uh, arrested. He pleaded no contest to the crime with a hate crime enhancement. Um, he was required to pay restitution to the library, to do community service, and uh, mandatory counseling, but he was not incarcerated. We had made inventories of the books, which now totaled 600, and the next step was to throw them away. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't complete the perpetrator's goal of removing this material from the San Francisco Public Library. I couldn't do it. So I started talking to some friends who are artists and we started brainstorming and they said, well, you know, we make altered books. We make artwork out of books. I'm Jody Alexander and I'm a book artist. I started making altered books, which is taking a, a book and you do what you want to it and, and make it into a work of art. And um, the first 
time I made an altered book was was kind of difficult. My my mistake was probably I, I was choosing books that were kind of precious to me. But I love ripping books apart now. I, I really get into it. And the way I get my students into it is we have a book mutilation therapy night and I have them bring a book that they hate, maybe an old algebra book or you know a teen romance that's just really awful. And then I bring in all my power tools. It's amazing, it, it is therapy. You should see some of these people just getting a lot out on these poor books. But I think there is something to it's us all being brought up thinking of books as such sacred objects and you know they're precious but then there I am ripping books apart. The idea was to give books to artists and see what they would do with them and these were people who either identified as professional artists or who identified as part of the gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender communities and in many cases neither of those categories. These were community members who were absolutely outraged and had found a way to express their feelings. And it was quilted, painted, it was two-dimensional, it was a working clock. Some pulped it, some burnt the book, put the ashes in a little vial, um, completely destroy the book. I got a book called In God's Image and it had just been like the vandal had a, an exacto knife or something, and he just slashed through the cover. It's just such a hateful thing. It affected so many people from, you know, the librarians to the public that should have had access to these books. And, and also as well as the authors of the books, and, and that's what kind of hit home with me with my book because of the inscription on the title page. The author of the book had um, inscribed it to somebody named Richard. And it said, to Richard with good warm wishes from Robert Cromie. I felt like that was the most human part of, of my book. And the slash happened to go right through it. I think when I f walked into the galleries when everything was all installed and under the lights and in the cases, I was just blown away. I was practically in tears because what had been hateful and disgusting and creepy was now joyous and celebratory. So it felt like each artist had done an act of activism, had transformed the piece they'd been given. And so now the room was filled with positive energy. Peter Crimmins is a radio producer and film fanatic living in West Philadelphia. So it doesn't turn out to be that bad, I guess. No, it I guess not. <laughs> Burning books isn't all that bad, maybe. No. For art. books for a good cause or for art is okay. Otherwise, it's Fahrenheit 451. Do you have any last thoughts about taboos? Have you learned anything from talking about it today? Um, I've learned that it's really relative. Yeah, and I've learned that there are things, the, the shock that I felt in the idea of burning books just shows me that even though I can apparently comfortably talk about cock rings, 
there is a little Puritan inside me. That's re to me, that's really interesting. So clearly there are things that are deeply embedded in me, like culturally and for other reasons that I find shocking that I wouldn't think I did. Yeah. I've learned that some taboos for other people, well, and I guess myself, can be really expensive. <laughs> There is a lot of expensive stuff in here. Yes. I know I mean, 50 bucks for one of these. 69 for the double double yeah. dildo. The double wide. The double dildo. It's a lot. <laughs> a lot to have. That's it for this episode of B-Side. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Timmy. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Sandy. <laughs> the show producer is Renee Gattel. Contributors are Dave Gilson, Peter Crimmins, Tamara Keith, who is also besides fabulous executive producer. The theme music was composed by David Kaufman. Want to learn more about B-Side? Of course. Go to bsideradio.org. That's B-S-I-D-E radio.org. You can meet the crew and listen to past shows. Also get our podcast. I'm Andrea Seabrook. Your tour guide your tour guide on this episode of b-side see you next time <laughs>